Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University. And here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to interview number 17 in our series of Meet the Education Researcher. My name is Neil Sowen and I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. So the aim of this podcast is really simple. We're going to spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm talking with Gila Leader, adjunct professor in the faculty, emeritus professor in La Trobe. Gila's really well known for her work in maths education research and it's a pleasure to talk with her. Good morning, Gila. Good morning, Neil. Now, first of all, you have to forgive me, but I do genuinely have a blind spot when it comes to maths education. I've worked around maths education researchers for a long time, but I've never actually stopped to talk to them about their field. So that's a really difficult question. But I mean, in a nutshell, how could you describe the field of maths education research to a kind of a non-participant? I guess a lot depends on whether you're talking about a mathematician or a mathematics educator. For a mathematics educator, when we think about mathematics, we would be thinking about sharing mathematical knowledge with students, we'd be thinking about uh, factors that facilitate or impede the learning of mathematics. And working in the Faculty of, of Education, we're also concerned when we're talking about mathematics education, how to prepare teachers who go out into the schools to handle that nebulous area of mathematics. Anyone who teaches in primary school will be teaching mathematics. Anyone who teaches in secondary school, we hope, has a a strong mathematical background, but not necessarily. Now, I've kept on talking about mathematics, but there's also a big debate about numeracy and mathematics. And um, especially in Australia and some countries overseas are also beginning to think along this direction. When you're talking about numeracy, the area that you ought to think about goes well beyond the mathematics classroom. There are just so many subjects, so many topics in the curriculum and also outside school where what we usually call mathematical knowledge is also critically important. So if you're asking me what's maths education, it's all those things and more. So you talked about this kind of schism between numeracy and maths ed. I mean, is it actually a schism or do people kind of cross and look at both? Uh, Well, people do look at both, but not necessarily in the same way as so often happens, um, both in psychology and in in education. There are terminological issues. So certainly people prefer talking about numeracy across the curriculum, and that involves a lot of mathematical ideas. So what areas have you particularly gone into within these kind of two areas? Well, I'm interested in anything that affects the learning and teaching of mathematics. I'm also very interested in equity issues and by that I include something that I don't think has been given anywhere near enough attention and that is the needs of mathematically able students. So when I'm talking about equity I'm thinking about students who need a lot of support at one end uh, of the spectrum and even though they certainly don't get enough support, they get more support than students at the other end of the uh, spectrum. So one of the big issues in um, UK research in the 2000s, I remember being gifted and talented. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, does your interest in kind of able students come under that? Absolutely, easy? absolutely. And it, it interacts with my interest in gender issues because quite unreasonably it's been assumed for such a long time that if you happen to be a female, mathematical skills are going to be more difficult for you and there's absolutely no reason for that to hold. Well, I was going to ask you about your specific interest in maths and gender. Now, everyone, almost everybody accepts this as a big issue in kind of 2017, but I mean, has that always been the case? I mean, how receptive has the field been to issues of, of gender over the years, over the decades? If you go back to the, I don't know, early 1900s, when the rules for matriculation were quite different and mathematics was not 
one of the important subjects uh, that uh, counted in matriculation. There were women who were doing uh, you know, senior secondary school mathematics and who were doing quite well. Once mathematics became uh, an important object, a subject as far as the curriculum was concerned, gender issues, gender differences started to appear. And I guess we can trace for more formal studies on issues of mathematics and gender to the 1970s. Factors that were then thought to be important and still are. How well you're going to do at a subject is at least in part determined about how much you've done before mm. and how well you've done before. Whether it expect it generally it's expected that you're going to like that subject, you're going to do well in it, is it seen to be important? So those broad issues have been looked at for quite a long time and they're still being looked at. Whether or not gender differences um, appear on test results, can be influenced by the form the test takes, the sort of questions that are asked, multiple choice, long-term questions, uh, the area of mathematics. What I didn't talk about in my previous answer is that mathematics is multifaceted. There are many, many different areas in it. And uh, it's a mistake to think that they're all the same uh, and that they all require the same skills. So having said all that, there's now a more recent debate about what does it mean to talk about sex and gender? Mm. And so the very definition of sex and gender is being, I guess, re-examined. Whether that's going to make a difference in terms of research, I'm not at all sure. Uh, it sounds a bit of a stupid question, but does the writing on gender in, in maths have a political edge to it? I mean, is it a particularly, as yours, a feminist take on this? I mean, Absolutely. It can have. It can have. And I think anyone who's doing research in a um, field like education accepts that the lenses that you as a researcher have will inevitably influence the questions you ask, but also influence the way you record or interpret the results that you find and that you want to interpret. So there are many different dimensions. I mean, you can be a Marxist a feminist, you can be a constructionist feminist. And unfortunately, that proliferation of research directions uh, hasn't done much to move the field forward. Mm. People end up talking about terminological issues which are far away from what educationalists are interested in, and that is how can we improve things for all our students. Yeah, absolutely. Now, changing gears a little bit, I wanted to talk to you about us being a scholar and being an academic. And a lot of what you've done in your career, I guess, could be termed in university management speak anyway, service work. Um, so you've served on lots of national associations and committees and international groups and commissions. Now, this is the sort of work that academics these days often try and duck out of doing. But I mean, what have you got from doing this kind of work? I mean, what have you gained from this side of being a scholar? I've, I've never been afraid to put it my hand. If there is, if there is a, an issue that needs to be resolved, there's no point in talking to your neighbour in the, in the office next door because that's not going to get you very far. So I think it's a good idea to join in in committees or join um, uh, organisations where your voice can be heard. Now, I guess uh, because I've not been afraid to speak up, my voice has been heard and I've been asked to do things, be on committees, think about issues that I didn't initially start off thinking I'd be grappling with. But, you know, if you see an issue and you think you can do something about it and you work with good people whom you can persuade as well, sometimes you can't, but if you can, um, I think it's worth doing. And I also think it's a responsibility of an academic mm. to use the skills and expertise you have acquired for the good of many. Has, has there been a highlight to that type of work that you've been doing? Is there anything that sticks out as being particularly satisfying? Probably what stands out most is the 
responsibility you have to emerging researchers who perhaps look up to you or to other people who've reached a certain nouveau in, 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 and to tell them, you know, everyone has feet of clay. You don't get anywhere if you just sit back and aren't prepared to, to put in a lot of effort. But there are a lot of people around who are prepared to help, who are prepared to support, who are prepared to open doors. And if you're in a senior organisational position, you can open doors for people you know, for people you don't know. And for example, when I was president of um, the Psychology of Mathematics Education, um, which is a, a, an international organisation, I never went to a meeting without um, the book that had the, um, listed all the mathematics education researchers in Australia who were members of the Australian organisation. That included students as well as senior staff members. So if there was a task that needed to be done, and I'm talking about a research task, uh, it was an opportunity to put forward perhaps a younger uh, yeah, member. Yeah. And it also, uh, while I was present in both times, people I think got sick of me talking about spring and autumn. I believed so strongly that if it was possible to um, link a mature researchers with an emerging researchers and to give emerging researchers opportunities that really stretch them, some of them made the most of it, some of them didn't. So I guess what stands out is the enjoyment, and there certainly was enjoyment, but also the responsibility. And we talk goes... a lot about mentorship and community yes, and yes. academic leadership. And as you say, you've actually got to roll your sleeves up and get involved. I mean, the other thing which I'm really interested in is the amount of students that you supervised. I'm not sure if you've got a number to hand, but I read somewhere it was kind of 60 plus. Do you have any pearls of wisdom that you've got to share after all this work? Any advice for students or for supervisors? I think a supervisor should not expect from a student what he or she isn't prepared to do herself. So my expectation has always been there's a commitment, there's a goal, there's a deadline. Now, all these things can be negotiable if something you know, exceptional happens. But um, the students whom I shepherd, helped shepherd from beginning to end all knew that if we had agreed that there'd be some written work by a certain time, it'd be there. But that also meant that I had a responsibility if they gave me the written work to give feedback in mm. plenty of time. I've also always encouraged them, and that may be a bit harder now, but to go to conferences and listen to feedback on presentations that they've given, to read widely, to read outside their field. Uh, I think the faculty here has a fantastic history of having you know, top researchers from all over the world give seminars. Well, go to a seminar that's out your, outside your field. You just don't know mm. how something just strikes you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting talking about the history of this faculty because it's the last question I was going to ask you. Uh, two two parts to it. Do you remember when you first came to this faculty? When, how long ago was that? I can I certainly remember. It was in, in 1966. And why did I come there? I worked until 10 days before my first child was born and suddenly I was home, you know, with a little baby. And uh, my parents didn't live in the same state. And I guess I had a choice. I could start swallowing Valium or do something to keep stimulated. So I came to Monash as a, a I suppose, a mature age student uh, in the days that you really needed to wear gun boots uh, because, well, that's just how the, the place looked. Um, in the first years that I, I went back to study, a typical class size, and anyone listening to this is going to be so jealous, was three or four students. And that, of course, meant that 
you, if you went, you certainly had to be prepared. You couldn't hide behind anything. And I, I guess um, my academic career grew up with the faculty. So, I mean, that was 51 years ago. Yes. And I was going to ask you what's changed, and you just described what's changed. I mean, is there anything that stayed the same? Well, I guess the need to work hard, to respect work, and to make sure that you you know you keep on learning yourself. Mm. I think it's a, it's on the one hand a very sad experience to submit a, an article, as a established researcher, and to have it rejected. Yeah. But it's a sobering experience, and I think it's a, a really solid reminder that you can always learn. So uh, that hasn't changed. I think what has changed, you haven't asked me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I think it's, you know, tragic that face-to-face um, -face contact is no longer considered as essential as it used to be, that attendance at lectures is no longer essential. And even though, you know, I use the internet daily, not having to go to the library to look at a particular book, I think is such a shame. <clears throat> some of the best things, some of the most stimulating books or articles <clears throat> that I've relied on during my career have been things that I've picked up because they were next to or above or below the book that I went into yeah, the library serendipity. for. Yeah, serendipity. So my final question was going to be along those lines. I mean, that was 50 years ago. I mean, I dread to think what's going to happen in 50 years' time, but I mean, where do you see the future of education research and faculties of education going? Well, you know, when you think about clothing, there's stuff which was, there were the articles which were completely out of fashion, which are coming back into fashion. So I'd like to think that what will come back into fashion is a reliance on standards, terrible thing to say, but a reliance on standards, an expectation that anyone who, who enrolls in a subject will fulfil the requirements and won't spend more time trying to manipulate those requirements than actually do the work. And I think people who experience face-to-face -face contact and the wealth that can come from that hopefully will fight hard to maintain that. So if I'm optimistic, I'd like to think that some of the things that we've lost that are really valued all those years ago will come back again and that we make the most of the resources that are around us. Yeah, that's a really positive note to end on. Well, thanks ever so much for your time, Gil. It's been really interesting.